Yeah, as Brick said, my name is Luke. Uh, I'm the pastor of student ministries here at the River, uh, which means that I get to hang out with all the junior high and high school kids, um, which is amazing and super fun. And they're full of energy and excitement all the time. And I think it was about two weeks ago that all the kids were just insanely hyper on Tuesday night at Tide, the junior high kids. And I was like, what happened this week that everyone was just not able to focus? And then it clicked that I gave them all cookies. And I was like, that was an amateur mistake to give them cookies before the message because then they were not focused at all. Uh, but it's just been so much fun to see them and get to see some of them here today. I love what I do. I love the kids. Uh, and it's, it's great to be with them and to be here with you guys this morning too. Uh, it's a bit of a more distracting morning, it feels like. Those dolphins were so close, weren't they? I felt bad for Amanda. If you saw everyone looking right by you, it's because that pack of dolphins literally like felt like they're in five feet of water right next to the sand. Anyway, but it's great to be here. Good to be with you. Um, I want to postulate something to you to start this morning, is that human beings love stories. It may seem like just kind of like, thanks for pointing that one out, Captain Obvious, obviously. But it's something that I think is so mundane, but yet so true, is that there's something in us, something innate within us as human beings, that we are drawn to stories. Uh, We have this natural propensity to, to go towards a good story. That we love them. We love the stories of love and romance. We love the stories of war and vengeance. There's just something in us that's drawing us to stories. I think this could be a divine trait given to us. I think it could be something that God has designed humans to have so that we might find ourselves within this greater story of what God is doing in the world. I mean, what God is doing in the world is truly the greatest story ever told, and it's still being written and it's unfolding now. And perhaps we have this innate desire within us that we might find ourselves in that story. It might be true. I'm not entirely sure why we have it. But most recently, why I'm convinced that humans love stories is the insane number of people who have been watching Ted Lasso. How many of you, by a show of hands, have seen Ted Lasso? Okay, that's good. That's probably over half of you. It's not just that you watch it. I'm convinced that Ted Lasso is like the new veganism. Like, you know how vegans are so excited to share with you that they're vegan? This is what it feels like with the people who watch Ted Lasso. Like, they are so excited to share with you that they watch Ted Lasso. Like, they just slip it into a conversation super quickly and easily. Like, it's going to come up with them at some point. And then they all do the same thing. When they figure out me and my wife haven't watched Ted Lasso, they take a step forward, hand out, you have to watch it. It's like this is going to change your life. It's the most wholesome TV show that's ever existed. And we still haven't watched it. <laughs> but you guys don't need to come up to me afterwards. I'm already convinced that I will like it if I do watch it. Uh, Brittany and I just haven't made the time for it yet. We don't have an Apple Plus subscription. But we, (laughs) with this reason and many others, I'm convinced that humans love stories. We do. I mean, probably many of you are binge-watching another Netflix or Disney Plus special. We love it. It's something innate within us. I think we use stories as well. We love them. We've drawn to them. But we also use them in a unique way. We use them to communicate morals and truths, and we use them to provide answers to some of life's deepest questions. There's a famous philosopher, his name's Charles Taylor, and he wrote this book, A Secular Age. It's a book 
that probably not many of us will ever read because it's 900 pages and it's like a brick. You can knock someone out with that book. So it's probably not one that many of us will endure and tackle. But I'm starting this book because I think it's a really important book for us to read. I'm only in the introduction. So anything that I say that sounds really smart, I'm only that far. So only take it with a grain of salt. But in the introduction to Charles Taylor's book, he says that every single human in all societies are asking some of these really important questions about what life is all about. What constitutes a good life? What makes us as humans truly happy? Where are we going? And what do we admire most from people? All of these questions are seeking to provide answers that we might orient our lives around. What is our identity? What is our purpose? Where do we belong? These types of questions all of us as humans are seeking to answer, provide answers to, and I think we often use stories to communicate these answers. We often use stories to communicate what the good life really is. What does it look like for us to be good? What's the narrative of success? Do we look at Steve Jobs and Elon Musk? Is that the narrative, their biographies? Is that success? Or perhaps we use other stories. Think about the many cultures around the world and throughout history that have these myths, that have these things about history that communicate who they are, where they came from. What does it mean to belong to this people group? And where is this group going? We all use stories to communicate morals and truths. And more than that, these stories that communicate these morals and truths shape us and who we are. We are shaped by the stories that we listen to. Again, this is another probably obvious truth, but it's one that's worth mentioning because it's important that we understand and reflect on the stories that we are being shaped by. Recently, my uh, wife and I were up in San Jose visiting some of her family, and uh, her cousin was really deep into the true crime podcasts. Anyone else listening to those on your way to work, all the true crime stuff? No one of that. Okay, everyone's watching Ted Lasso. No one's doing the true crime stuff. But she was watching this super deep into it that we were on a hike. And we were in the middle of the woods, these beautiful big redwood trees, and we saw deer and salamanders and all this really cool stuff. But all she was thinking about was, oh, that killer would definitely come in and plant some bodies over there. She, everything was just shaped by it. And this happened like four times in the, our little hot hike was just everything, oh, that killer would have done this, oh, this. Everything was shaped through the lens of the story that she was listening to. And all of us do this with the stories that we're listening to. All the Disney and Marvel movies, all these things are shaping our perspective of reality and they're shaping our perspective of what the world is really like. What does it mean to be a good human? Who is God? Where do we belong? Where is all this going? And so we've been going through this sermon series for the last five or six weeks now. Someone's going to have to confirm that. And we've been looking at the scriptures as Jesus used them, the Old Testament scriptures. And what we've been implicitly arguing with you and explicitly now is the idea that the more firmly that we are rooted in this biblical story, the more firmly that we see all of scripture the better image of reality we're really going to have. The better we're going to be able to articulate the answers to these questions that we ask. What is life really about? What does it mean to be a good human? Who is God? How does he interact in the world? 
the more truly and firmly that we root ourselves in the scriptures, the more firmly and truly we're going to live into reality as it really is. When we find ourselves in this narrative, we're going to find ourselves living to the fullness of what life is all about. So this morning, I want to ground us into another story. We're going to look at how Jesus uses and teaches some Old Testament scriptures. And this morning, we're going to learn a few things. First is that the space of God's presence is available to everyone. The space of God's presence is available to everyone. And second, God's invite his followers, Jesus invited his followers to a prayer life of deep faith, faith that can move mountains. And third, is that our prayer lives are rooted in forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Mark chapter 11? We're going to start in verse 15, Mark chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you can try to pull it up on your phone. I never get enough service down here to actually pull it up on my phone, so I pretend like I'm going to get it for a little bit, and then I'll just set it down and then just listen along. So if that's you, you don't even have to pretend. You can just listen along, and that's great. All right, so Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 15. I'm going to read it for us, uh, and then I'm going to pray again, just in case we haven't prayed enough this morning, uh, and then we'll dive in. Here we go, Uh, 15. On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Would you pray with me? Living God, we believe that uh, this text was inspired by your Holy Spirit, that you inspired the gospel writer Mark to faithfully record these uh, things down as eyewitnesses to this which really happened. And we believe that uh, in this text we come to learn about you, to know you, and to have life in your name. And so we ask in your loving mercy that you would help us understand this text and apply it to our lives like never before, because we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we have another story. And as any good story, must provide a little bit of context for what's going on. And the context I want to provide is around the temple. The space of the temple in all of creation. The temple, you can underestimate the significance of the temple in the life of Israel. I mean, the temple was everything. It was the center of the social life. You were going to meet people at the temple. I mean, you were required to go three times a year up to the temple to take this pilgrimage that you would go to the temple. You take everyone. Let's say we were a community in a village. All of us together would caravan up to the temple. It might take us about 40 miles to get there. So we'd spend days traveling to get to the temple. The temple was, in many ways, the center of the social life of Israel. It's also the center of the political life of Israel. All those major decisions were made at the temple. I mean, you would listen to God and the priests as they ruled as people obeyed God's commandments. That happened from the temple. Center of the cultural life, center of the economic life, and certainly it was the center of the religious life of Israel. 
Of course, it was the center of the religious life of Israel. I mean, the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. This was the idea that heaven and earth would meet at the temple, that people as they would go into the temple would see God there, that the name of God would dwell in the temple. This is the place where God as king would rule, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created the oceans and the dolphins as they were swimming behind us, behind me. They created the heavens and the earth, and he would be made known there. His glory and his majesty would be made known at the temple. It's an incredible thing. You cannot underestimate the significance of the temple. King Solomon was the one who made the temple. And when he made the temple, he dedicated it with this beautiful and long prayer. And I want to read to you part of the prayer. Because I think it's really important for us to understand who this God is, the religious significance of the temple. So he prayed, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall dwell there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. I think, if you could follow along with that, I think it really shows what the temple is. How could this place really contain the God of heaven and earth, but yet God has chosen in his freedom and in his grace to make his name known there, that people from all over the world might be able to come to the temple and interact with the living God, that all might come and know that he is the God of heaven and earth, that all might come and know and be reconciled and have a relationship with this God, that God's presence would be made known in the temple. This was a place for all peoples. And this is the context of which we see Jesus entering into the temple. You cannot underestimate the significance of the temple. And so when Jesus enters into the temple this day and starts making a scene, you could imagine the reaction of the crowd. I think this is a well-known story in many of our lives. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard it because this often this hits on a minor note of Jesus' life and his ministry. This is a prophetic moment of Jesus. Jesus creating this huge scene is this prophetic moment where he is calling out the wrong things that are happening. He's calling Israel to repentance. But we often don't think of Jesus in this way. Usually we like to picture Jesus with this long flowing hair and he's probably holding a sheep and just super like peaceful and calm. And this is definitely not the image of Jesus that we get in this story. We usually see this story and we see it perhaps some of us as a justification to get out anger if your server, you know, doesn't serve you with the grace and love of Jesus. That you have justification to flip a table and get really mad and storm out of the restaurant. It's a nice way to get out frustration. That's not what the text is saying, but it's true. But Jesus walks in and he acts in this prophetic way because he wants the people to see and hear and be changed and be reformed into what the temple is really all about. And the first thing 
I want us to focus in on this morning is that the space and the presence of God is available to everyone. And this is what the temple is all about. So Jesus comes in, he throws away, flips the tables, and he shoes away all the people, those who are selling doves. And he shoes away those who had merchandise and were selling merchandise in the temple. And he shoes away those who were exchanging money. And he does this because this was the improper use of the temple. I mean, they were taking advantage of the poor, of the foreigner, of the oppressed. Those who were exchanging money were doing so because when you went to the temple, you had to pay a temple tax. Everyone had to. There was a tax that you were to pay that would support the temple and what was going on there. And so there was money changers who existed and they were on the inside in the temple courts. And so you would come in and you would bring your foreign currency and you would exchange that to get the right currency for the temple tax. You following me? Make sense? As we have seen at many airports, if you've ever need to exchange money, the rate never goes in the favor of those in need. I'm sure that those who are exchanging money were exchanging at a rate where they too would gain a profit. That they too were taking away, taking advantage of the foreigners that were coming to worship at the temple. In the same way, they were taking advantage of those who were poor and oppressed. I'm sure everyone is well aware of the uh, sacrificial system within the temple. I'm sure we all study this in our free time because it's just a delight. But when you went to the temple, you were required to sacrifice a sheep. And if you couldn't afford to sacrifice a sheep, you were able to sacrifice a couple doves. The temple was never intended to rob people of the intimacy with God, but yet when they were selling these doves as a sacrifice, they were taking advantage of the poor. This is why Jesus in his prophetic moment shoes them out, gets them away, because they weren't using the temple for what it was intended to do. And he teaches them after this. He doesn't just cause a scene and then leave. He sits in the temple and begins to teach everyone what he's doing. And he teaches them through Jeremiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 56. In Jeremiah chapter 7, this is a prophetic warning that Jesus is echoing here and now for the people. It's a call to repentance. When people are not using a temple for what it's for, the temple will be done away with. In Jeremiah chapter 7, it's the exact same thing. It's, will you stop taking advantage of the poor? Will you stop taking advantage of the widow, of the foreigner? Would you stop worshiping in foreign gods? Would you stop deceiving yourselves that you, just because you are in the temple, that you are living in the correct space and mentality? So Jesus calls us out over this people. Would you pause and reflect? Would you see what the temple is really for? This was supposed to be a place that was intended for prayer and worship, for all nations to come and see and know who God is. And you are using it for a den of robbers. He teaches from Isaiah 56 that his house should be called a house of prayer. In Isaiah, this is the image of the new Jerusalem, of what it's really supposed to be like. And I want to read this text to you as well. I want you to hear what Jesus is teaching on. 
He says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. If you were confused on that verse, you can ask your parents. This isn't the time for that. Uh, and then he says, Of the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So this is what Jesus was teaching out of and on. He was rooting them back into the story of the people of Israel, back into the story of what God is doing in this world, back into the big story of God always seeking out humans, always being available to us, always showing that he wants to have this relationship with us. And whenever we, the church or Israel, are getting away from that, we need to hear this call to repentance and to reform. And this is what Jesus wants us to hear and gather, that the space of God's presence is available to everyone. The space of God's presence is available to everyone. And we learn later in the New Testament that we as the church now become this new temple. That us, as we sit here on this beach and all churches gathered throughout the world, are supposed to be the place where the living God makes his presence known. The place and space where the living God may meet people. May come to know and worship and love and adore and seek forgiveness and get forgiveness. In this place, we, the church, now become the temple, the space where the living God and humans meet and interact. And this is a beautiful calling. I think it encourages us to welcome new people in, to hear this same prophetic call of Jesus and hear it in ourselves that we too should welcome, include, introduce, and make sure that people have the opportunity to encounter the living God. This is truth number one. The more firmly we're rooted in the story of Jesus, we learn that the space and presence of God is available to everyone. Truth number two is that Jesus invites his followers to have a life, a prayer life of deep faith, a faith that can move mountains. This is the next couple paragraphs later in Mark. Mark, in his writing style, he uses this fancy thing called intercalation, which doesn't really matter for you guys. It's just if you're at a cocktail party with Christians, you can throw it out there. It's a very unique group that you might not be in. But if you are there, Mark uses this intercalation, which means that he takes two stories and he kind of interweaves them together that you might interpret these stories together, that they help interpret the other. And what's going on here is Jesus is using the story of the temple with the story of him cursing a fig tree. And the story of him cursing the fig tree is what we've just been talking about, this prophetic judgment that Jesus has against the people of Israel, that he wants to invite them to repentance and to reform. And then after teaching on the temple, after creating this prophetic act, he then teaches on prayer, so that we would see prayer and the life of prayer as deeply connected to what was just happening in the temple. So the next thing that Jesus does is he teaches his disciples on what it looks like to have a healthy prayer life. And there's two major things that he points out here. The first one is what I've just said, 
is that the life of prayer is a life rooted in deep faith. In faith that can move mountains. A faith that trusts and believes in the power of God. I mean, think about it. Jesus is inviting us to pray to the Father, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who made everything come into existence, the one who is making the whole divine plan come to its order, to its purpose, to its end. And he invites us into this plan to trust that he is powerful and that he is good. Mark doesn't have the Lord's Prayer in his gospel, but if he did, if he were to write about it, I think he would put it here. And we know in the Lord's Prayer that starts with our Father who is in heaven. And we start with this prayer because it leads us to think, to know of who we're praying to. Our Father, the God who loves us, the God of the temple who forgives, the God of the temple who's gracious and merciful, whose love extends forever and ever. This is who we're praying to, our Father who is in heaven, who is above all. That we might have faith in this God, being able to move and change all things on this earth, that this God might be made known among the nations. Our Father who is in heaven, Jesus is inviting us to pray with the faith that we know who our God is. We can trust him. He can move mountains. And he invites us to pray with that faith. But I recognize that faith in this day and age is hard. It is. I mean, the kind of cultural world and environment that we live in, we're swimming in the waters of doubt and of skepticism. Many of you probably feel like it's hard to have faith like Jesus invites us into. It's our natural inclination in the world around us to doubt. I mean, in a secular age in this world, the space of God is, well, one option among many, and probably for many it's hardly a plausible one. And yet we who are here sit in this tension of the space of those who have interacted with the living God, who believe or who are seeking him out, And Jesus invites us into this deeper and intimate relationship. But I wonder if you, like many others right now, have questions about faith. I would expect many of us do, and in our world and age, it's good. It's good to lean into this. To ask those questions and to seek answers and to seek the living God who has made himself known. I believe, help my unbelief. And so we as a people continue to learn, continue to grow, and continue to have a deeper faith and trust in Jesus. And this is the second thing that we learn as we engage ourselves into this story. That Jesus invites his followers to have a deep prayer and trust in him who changes everything. The final thing that we learn from this story is that Jesus wants our prayer lives to be rooted in forgiveness. I mean, this is what the temple was all about. The whole sacrificial system was built around forgiveness. That people might come and know God as the God is the one who forgives. The one who loves us, who loves humanity so deeply, so magnificently, that we might come to him and that he would forgive us. And that we see this in the person of Jesus. We see the fullness of love, of sacrifice, and of forgiveness in the person of Jesus. That he has come so that we might enter fully 
into the forgiveness and grace of God. And this is why God invites us to have this as the core of our prayer lives. That we might be like Jesus, interacting in the space of forgiveness. That we might forgive others just as God has forgiven us. That we might take the heart of the temple and bring it out into the world. That we might be a a people in a place of forgiveness. And this is one thing that our world desperately, desperately needs. To be and have a space of forgiveness. Many philosophers and great thinkers of our time have noted that we are shifting narratives in our culture right now. And some of them have labeled this new narrative that we're teaching ourselves a victim narrative. That we are seeing everything through the lens of oppressor and oppressed, a perpetrator and a victim. I'm not saying right now whether that's good or bad. That's not my point. But there is this narrative that seems to be happening right now that we are shifting ourselves and our culture to see everything through this lens. And I think as we start to see everything through this lens, the natural tendency that we're going to have is to have more people identifying as victims who will need to seek forgiveness. And those who are in the space of the oppressor will also need to seek forgiveness. All that I'm trying to say is I think that the need for forgiveness is going to increase more and more in our society. I think we as a church are going to serve a very unique space and place in this. That we might be a people of forgiveness. Knowing all that God has done in Jesus Christ for us may embody this space of forgiveness in our culture that desperately needs it, that we would extend forgiveness to each other and that we would seek it out when we wronged others. And we would pray for forgiveness because this is at the heart of what the temple is all about. And this is at the heart of a prayer life of those who follow Jesus. The more firmly that we root ourselves into this story, the story of scripture, the Jesus story, the more firmly we're going to see life as it really is, the more firmly we're going to have answers to the questions about what is a good life? What does it mean to be a good person? Who is God? How has he revealed himself? And in this story, in the story of Jesus clearing the temple, we learn that the space of God is available to everyone, that God invites us to pray with faith that can move mountains. And this is perfectly timed right at the close. And and the third point is that we are a people of prayer who forgive. All right, everyone send a good wave to the driver. All right. It's actually really nice out there here, though, because the beach has a ton of seaweed down there, and I know tomorrow it's not going to be there. And this is kind of a first-world thing. That's nice to have a beach with that seaweed, so that's that's a wave of thanks to them, all that they do. Um, Last point. This is this, in conclusion. Pretty soon here, I'm going to invite Amanda and the worship team to come back up now. We're going to take communion. And this is one way that we get to participate in this story, in the narrative of what God is doing in the world. It's an amazing and beautiful thing. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples to eat. And he said, take this. This is my body, which is broken for you. 
In a similar manner, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink, this is my blood shed for you. And this morning we get to participate in this story. That we get to show and symbolize that we are one with Jesus, a part of his body, that we are partaking in this new covenant, that we are participants in this greater story of God's redemption to the world. That his sacrifice is good, is sufficient, is full. And this is good news, that we, as people who love stories, are able to join in the greatest story that's being told. Would you pray with me? Living God, we... Uh, thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have uh, come, sent your son, and redeemed us, forgiven us. And we thank you that your heart is for people, that you want to live in relationship with us and invite us into just submission to you, that we get to come to know you as God and Father, that you care about us. So I ask that you would Help continue to mold us and shape us into people in the image of your son. I say this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to close with two worship songs and then do communion. And then we'll get to enjoy this very hot day in November. Still 
know his name. We believe that this morning. So let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and wind still know his name. The waves and wind. The waves and wind still know his name. We sing this with one voice. It is well with my soul. And it is well in every season with my soul. I stand firmly here. It is well, it is well with my soul. Your love is here, Lord. It is Every evening with my soul, it is well, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. I believe it this morning, it is well, it is. time it is well with my soul and it is well it is well with my soul and through it all through it all my eyes are on you through it all through it all it is well Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you, and it is well with me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood then Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust but holy trust in Jesus name let's sing that again together my hope is built on nothing less Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust, but holy trust in Jesus' name, in Christ alone. And Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong, in our Savior's love, through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. Sing. 
when darkness seems to hide his face. When darkness seems to hide his face, I will rest. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds. My anchor rolls within the veil. My anchor holds, yes. My anchor rolls within the veil in Christ alone, yeah. Oh, Christ alone, cornerstone. The weak made strong in the Savior's love through the he is Lord, He's Lord of all. Let's sing it again. In Christ alone we find our hope. Oh, Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He Hey, thanks, Luke. What an incredible uh, message and reminder that we have the presence of God in our midst. And I, I don't want us to leave this morning without recognizing the fact that every single one of us here has the ability to enter into the temple of God, the presence of God. The ill motives have been swept away by Jesus. We enter by faith through forgiveness. And we have the presence of God in our midst. We need to be a people of God that are praying boldly with great faith to move mountains. So, Luke, what a great reminder, what a challenge you have set before us as a church that I know, I am absolutely convinced that there are a lot of needs among us. There is sickness, there is worry, there is anxiety, there is fear, but there's also great need that we have. There's also things that we're praying about that we want to see God do. Let's approach the throne room of God with great boldness, shall we? Let's do that. Every single one of us. The power of prayer is beyond our imagination. It goes beyond your imagination. You think you know what God can do. You have no idea. He will do far greater than what we can even imagine if we focus and bring those requests, whatever it is. And as Luke, you said, it's anything. It's everything we have. It's all we have. He's opened up the temples wide. Let's come in through his presence. And so I, I want to challenge this as a church. We're moving to a new location. We're going to gather new people. I mean, there's a lot of change going on. We've got a great team. We've got fantastic things going on in our church. We should be praying boldly for these things. We should be praying for our neighbors. We should be praying for people along Catalina that will see that we now have a church uh, in the Catalina room, that we have a church on the beach. I met somebody today who just walked by and said, I'm, I see you're having church. I'm going to join. That's what we're about. And we want to continue to reach out. Let's pray like we really believe 
God can move a mountain. I can't move the mountain. You can't move the mountain. He can. Let's do that as we go to communion. Believe that God can move mountains. And he's offering us forgiveness at the cross so that our prayers will be answered. Let's do that together. So if you want to make your way up to the communion table, we're just going to keep singing as you take the elements and then you're released for the day. Bless you guys. So Lord, we approach your throne boldly this morning as we come and take communion and remember the sacrifice that you made, that we could boldly approach the throne of grace. Jesus, would you remind us of that this morning, that in Christ alone our hope is found, our strength is found,